Good evening, Ed. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. No science advisor, Matt Moniz. No psychic medium, Stephanie Burke. No silent assassin, Matt Costa. It's just myself here tonight uh, talking about the paranormal as we do each and every Saturday night. Tonight, we're going to have the phone lines open for you to call in with any of your paranormal experiences, your paranormal thoughts, anything that you want to share from the paranormal realm. And we will do that at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. I don't even know if we have that number anymore. Forget that number. 508-996-0500. It's been so long since I had to worry about somebody utilizing a toll-free number that I've never even asked if we still run that number anymore. Because most people just call with their cell phones now, and they don't have to worry. Remember those days when you could actually get in trouble for making long-distance calls at home without telling your parents? Or, you know, if you were if you were the parent, you know, you'd had to worry about making a long-distance call because how much is this call going to cost me? You know, sorry, Grandma, I have to go. This is costing me 25 cents a minute. And you would pay, like, whatever you would normally pay your phone company, and then you'd have to pay the long-distance carrier and all that kind of stuff. Man, you kids today, you don't understand how difficult it was. You don't understand what it was like to have to, first of all, carry change on you because you might want to or you might have to make a phone call. So you would be like going to the beach and your parents would drop you off at the beach. Or maybe, you know, you were old enough to drive yourself or something, but you better keep some change in the car or keep some change in your sock in case you had to make a phone call. Uh, But you don't have to do that anymore. You can call us directly, 508-996-0500. And if you utilize the WBSM app to listen to the program, well, hey, it's even easier for you. You can just hit the call now button right inside the app. So it makes it uh, even easier for you to call. And, And I... You know, it'll go right to your phone's dialer. So you don't, you you won't be calling us over the internet. You'll be calling us over your phone. So I know that that's a, a concern for some people because you're worried about who's listening in. Because there's all these crazy conspiracy theories out there now. I can't believe the, uh, the amount of people that used to share paranormal stuff. And, have, and be ridiculed and mocked for believing in something with no basis of proof. And then we would try to argue, like, look it, we have all this, all this proof. We have all this data that we've collected over the years. And we would put that out there and it wouldn't be enough to convince anybody that this pursuit was worth our time. But yet, you know, and, and I'm not going to get into them here tonight. We're certainly not going to take phone calls on them either. But just the most obscure and least believable conspiracy theories now are getting... You know, all kinds of traction online. So, stop picking on us ghost people and us UFO people and us Bigfoot people because we've probably got more proof for what we believe than you have for what you're peddling. (laughs) But that's just the nature of it. Uh, And one of the things that I want to talk about tonight as well, uh, we've talked quite a bit here on the program over the years because not only is this a show for... Uh, The Paranormal World, which as the more that we have done this show, that has changed. Uh, You know, the, the, the demographic of what makes up the listenership of this program has changed. You know, 14 years ago, 
we had a lot of people that were tuning into the show because they were interested in the paranormal, but not because they were necessarily savvy about it or, you know, they, they just didn't have the, the wealth of experience about it. And they would call us and write to us via email and, and have questions about very basic stuff. Over the years, you know, those people have become more savvy about the paranormal and more savvy people have started listening to the program as well. But if you go all the way back to the first year, uh, and, and because part of it is we also have a local audience. We also have the South Coast audience. That's why it's Spooky South Coast, because we're on the South Coast of Massachusetts. For, for those of you listening on Midnight FM and you have no idea why the program is called that. Uh, and that means that we're also serving people in Southeastern Massachusetts, Cape Cod, a little bit into Rhode Island. Uh, and, and now with our app, of course, and our WBSM online stream, you know, people can listen to us from all over, but we, we have a lot of people that listen to us from New England. And so in those early days, a frequent topic were Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were known as, you know, New England's seekers of the supernatural, New England's ghost hunters, uh, you know, however they wanted to term it. I don't, I don't think people really understood some of the terminology back then, you know, to, to, for Ed to call himself a demonologist and for them to talk about how, um, Lorraine was a clairvoyant, you know, but I, th- I think everybody kind of understood that they were researchers into the paranormal. And so they would pop up on television from time to time. You'd be watching, you know, Chronicle on Channel 5 with your parents. And uh, around Halloween time, there might be um, an episode that they talk about some of the haunted locations of New England. And Ed and Lorraine would pop up talking about some of their investigations. And of course, as paranormal themed television became more popular and shows like in search of then begat that's incredible and then we had sightings and uh, uh what was that one factor faked uh, so there's been all these other programs that dealt with paranormal topics from a perspective of uh i guess we'll call it a journalistic approach where they're just trying to share the the stories and the information and so you would often see ed and lorraine warren pop up on those And they became kind of folk heroes, not only for the paranormal world, but in the New England world as well, because it was kind of a matter of where else but here in New England would we have a married couple that spends their time going out and fighting demons and researching ghosts and all of that. So there was probably uh, a little bit of hero worship for everybody that started listening to this program. Uh, in those in, in those early days back in 2006. And we had, you know, one of our first guests, I think it was uh, our third or fourth week ever on the air, John Zaffis, who, uh, if you don't know, is the nephew of Ed and Lorraine Warren. We had him on, and he's been on a few times over the years. Uh, then, I think about six months into the existence of Spooky South Coast, Ed Warren passed away. And you know, we had known that he was ill, that he had been, uh, you know, for, for five years, he'd been re- trying to make it back from a stroke. But, uh, you know, it wasn't something that we, we talked a lot about on the program because we're not giving away somebody's, you know, personal health information. But we, I mean, no doubt when we started Spooky South Coast, we wanted to have Ed and Lorraine Warren on the program. And one of the first people that we reached out to was John Zaffis. And we were surprised that he not only even answered our call, but 
that he agreed to appear on this brand new program just speaks to the kind of guy that he is. I mean, he's he, he's willing to do anything to help anybody in the paranormal world. But, you know, I didn't know what to expect. But in the conversations that I had with him, I had asked him if he thought having Ed and Lorraine on was a possibility. And he told me then, you know, that Ed had not been well, uh, that he had suffered a stroke a while back, and that Lorraine was pretty much his full-time caretaker. So, I mean, I knew that it wasn't going to happen uh, at that point. So... Again, fast forward about six months after the program started. Uh, so we're talking like June of 2006, I think it was. Ed Warren passed away. And we found out if I remember, I'd have to really kind of go back and look and see what happened. But if I remember correctly, what happened was he passed away on a weeknight. And I think we contacted John Zaffis. And he agreed to do the interview that night. So we had to fly down to WBSM and record the interview. I, I think that's how it went or whatever it was that ended up happening. I remember us all being huddled around the news booth because it was the only other place I knew how to record at WBSM back in those days, uh, interviewing John Zaffis over the phone about Ed Warren. And then we were able to run that as our next program. So we were able to kind of get that immediate reaction to it. And then, you know, we didn't really talk about the Warrens all that much. They would always work their way into the discussions because as we're talking to other paranormal researchers and investigators in New England, naturally the names Ed and Lorraine Warren are going to come up. So, and, and not only the the people, but also the cases that we would talk about, you know, our, our first, our second, our first ever show was Keith Johnson, of course, our good friend Keith, uh, who has been, you know, uh, helping us uh, behind the scenes of the program, even really before we started, helping us with information and and teaching us, really. Uh, the And he worked with Ed and Lorraine Warren, of course. He was one of the original investigators of the Conjuring case. It was actually Keith and his brother Carl who were running the investigation of the farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, that said, you know, we need to reach out to Ed and Lorraine Warren because they needed backup for what was going on because it was more than they could handle. And then, of course, the the Warrens came in and kind of took things over, but but the Johnsons and their team kind of st- stuck around. And so he, of course, knew them. We've had on uh, our second program, Paul Eno, and Paul Eno knew them very well. Uh, Paul Eno worked with them on the Bridgeport, Connecticut poltergeist case. Uh, he was actually, an, an, uh, I don't know the exact term of, of what he was, but he was studying in the seminary at the time. And so when they brought in the priest to kind of conduct an exorcism of, of that house, he was the assistant with that. So he got to know the Warrens, and, and he worked with them for a long time. And then there's... Um, Jeff Belanger was one of our early guests in that first year, and he knew them. You know, he grew up in Connecticut, so he knew the Warrens. He actually didn't live that far from them, I guess. And so he would he would be able to provide us with information about them. They were just always on the cusp of the conversation. And when the Conjuring movie came out, of course, now they move into the spotlight even more so. Now, they were already kind of superstars, of the paranormal world. They were already the people 
that were looked at as you know the 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 previous generation so if you if you lay out kind of a diagram of you know the paranormal investigators that move things forward from from one generation to the next i think the biggest names that you'll see from you know like the 50s to the 90s you know before we can say like in the 90s things shifted more with i think zaphis and then of course, in the early 2000s, the television programs start, and then people are focusing on taps and ghost adventures and all that. So the generation right before them, I think, would have been headlined by Hans Holzer and Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, that's no disrespect to the other investigators that were out there working during that time. I'm sure Lord Auerbach doesn't like me excluding him from that list, but I'd, I'd kind of put his influence a little bit later. Because I think his his influence kind of came in a little bit later on when people could um, research him more on the internet. Before then, he was just the guy that we kind of saw on TV, and he wasn't as connected. I think I'm also being biased in the fact that you know Lloyd's working in California, Ed and Lorraine Warren are working out of Connecticut, uh, Hans Holzer is working out of New York City. So, like, I might have a little bit of an East Coast bias here with that. But I do think that that was kind of the generation that really kind of influenced the generation now that that I work in and, and that I work with. And the criticism on that generation has always been they were seeking a spotlight in the work that they do. And I'm bringing this up, by the way, because there is a, a good documentary that's uh, airing on the Travel Channel this week. It premiered the other night, but then also they were rerunning it today, and and they actually had sent me an advanced copy, and I didn't have time to watch it, or else I would have written up a review and put it up on uh, the WBSM website. But they, and I didn't get a chance to watch it until this afternoon, but they were putting together this documentary for a little while now, and I knew some of my friends were going to be on this documentary and I was, I was worried about if they would, if it would be total outright hero worship because the Warrens have moved into the realm of folk hero, especially now being portrayed in the Conjuring films. So I was concerned that they wouldn't really necessarily show the warts. There's some warts that probably weren't shown and weren't discussed, um, and, and we can maybe get into that. But one of the things that they did talk about was the fact that they were, you know, good at utilizing the media and almost manipulating the media to some degree. And something that, you know, Jeff has talked to me before about, and he's talked about on this program too, I believe, is, you know, they weren't just manipulating the media to get themselves famous. They were they were utilizing that platform that they had because that's how they would get more cases. So there was no internet to say, where can I find a ghost hunter in my area? You probably weren't picking up the yellow pages and searching, you know, for, for, you know, ghost hunters in the yellow pages. So they had to find a way to get themselves out there and utilizing, you know, local news as a way to do that. And with the Bridgeport case, you know, that starts bringing in national news uh, and then getting involved in cases like the Amityville case that's going to bring in a national audience as well and then they were on all the daytime talk shows 
they're they're being featured on on the newswire. You know, that's going to get you the attention that you need to then bring you other cases. So I could understand utilizing the media in that regard. But one thing I didn't really take into account, or or maybe I just had erased it from my mind and this documentary brought it back up, is they were also utilizing the media as a way to leverage it against the Catholic Church. Because they would go and try and help these families who needed help, and they would ask the church if they could conduct an exorcism. Now, not an exorcism on a person, which anybody that has seen, you know, movies, televisions, all those different shows that deal with those, uh, you know that that is, that's a dangerous thing to get into because you really have to understand that the person is not mentally ill. You have to understand that the person is not faking it because then if you're faking it, then you're only really making a mockery of the entire thing by, by playing into their hoax. So there's a lot of factors that you have to consider when it comes to conducting an exorcism of a person. But where I think you can get away with having an exorcism of a building, of a location, is even if the phenomena is not real, you know, even if maybe the phenomena is being hoaxed, if the phenomena is being misinterpreted, then having an exorcism of the location usually would just serve as the end point for whatever was going on. So you're putting you're putting a finishing touch, a period on the sentence, and that would probably end whatever's going on, be it hoax, be it misinterpretation, whatever. So I don't know why it, it was such a big deal to not be willing to help with exercising a location. But then again, I'm not Catholic. I don't know you know, how important that ritual is. I don't know how guarded it was. I know that it's certainly not as guarded as it was, maybe in those days, certainly not before, uh, or certainly before, because you know, now we have a lot of you know, lay exorcists, people who are not associated with the church, but yet will use the, the Roman Catholic rite of exorcism. But maybe by then, especially at that time, I would think too, because you know, we're talking about the time of the, the book and the movie, The Exorcist, they're probably becoming a little bit um, defensive about that kind of stuff uh, when it comes to the media. So the Warrens would utilize the media to try and force the hand of the church. So by having it by having it be the the I don't want to say the the butt of the joke, but you know, almost kind of like the here we are saying, you know, this family needs help and the church is turning their back on this family, this family who are, you know, devout Catholics and are asking for the church to give them a hand here. And, and they're turning their back to the, how Christian is that? To turn your back on somebody who needs you. And, you know, being able to kind of utilize that type of rhetoric, they got what they wanted. So there was some, there was some controversy in that regard for sure. But it does show that they, they utilize the media as a way to kind of 
get the results that they wanted. Now, did they also utilize the media to make a name for themselves so they could go out on the college, college lecture circuit? Sure. And I've learned, I might have been more judgy about that in 2006 than I would be now. Because now I utilize the paranormal as a way to make a living for myself. Now, I don't go out and investigate people's homes and charge them for it. That would be wrong. Because you're not, as I always say, you're not an exterminator. You can't go into there, conduct an investigation, come out, hold up the ghost by the tail and say, look, we got him. Uh, everything's okay now. Give me 300 bucks. So because there's no real proof of what it is that we are encountering, then it wouldn't be right to charge. Now, some teams might say to somebody, uh, you're, you know, 150 miles from where we live and so, you know, we would like it if we went out there, if you would reimburse us for gas, or we would like it if we went out there, if you would provide us with, you know, a per diem for meals or cook for us or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Like, I think that that's fair. That's just, that's just fair barter. That's not really charging somebody for your services. That's more charging somebody for your time and for any inconvenience in terms of helping you. And by the way, from my understanding, the Warrens never did that. I'm sure some people probably made them food, but they never like required you to give them anything in exchange for their services. But I'm sure that in return, they probably had, you know, waivers that you would sign that say that they could talk about these cases publicly and that they could probably write books and they probably secured all of the information uh, underwrites. And, and, and I don't know the ins and outs of the deal they have with Warner Brothers for those case files and all of that. But I'm sure that there was something that was signed by the people who were having these paranormal problems that allowed for these cases to be portrayed in the media. So now I can go out and give lectures. And a little bit later on, I'll tell you about some that I have coming up for the Halloween season. I'm doing a few with libraries that uh, will be free, of course. Uh, you just have to pre-register because they do them on zoom and the slots are limited i will say though that we are working on a plan that if that does become the case for some of these lectures uh, some of the libraries are willing to allow me to handle an overflow via a live stream that we can do on spooky south coasts social media or on midnight fm social media so it's not you know it's it's not out of the realm of of possibility that you can certainly join into these. Uh, I am going to ask though, that we allow the, the zoom spots to go to the local people first. I just think that's a better way to do it. And it, it shows the libraries that local people want to have this type of programming all the time. And then we can use the overflow for some of you folks from out of town. But, uh, and then I'm doing another one coming up, uh, in Middleborough, uh, in association with a theater and a performing arts school there, which I'll tell you about too, which there will be a suggested donation for that one, but it's it's pretty cool because it won't be virtual. It'll be in person, socially distanced, you know, properly following all the rules. But it'll be probably the only chance I'll have all October to get out there and, and hang out with you all and tell you some ghost stories. But I'll give you all that information coming up after the, the next news break. But that, you know, I know that I can make a living doing those kind of things. And, and, and I don't, it's just, you know, supplementary, but I can write books and I can work on TV shows and I can do all of that thanks to 
Ed and Lorraine Warren keeping themselves in the public eye and keeping themselves on television and in the newspapers. So that's that's the good part of what it was that they were doing is they were giving legitimacy to us. So a skeptical person is always going to look at that and say, well, they were just trying to get themselves on TV. And then a person like myself that now does this and, and wants respect for what it is that we do. I don't say that you have to agree with me and that you have to like my point of view on it and that you have to want to come along and investigate with me and all that kind of stuff. But I at least want you to respect the fact that I do it and respect the reasons why. And I can tell you that there are people listening to this program right now that do not. There are people listening to this program right now that are just listening to it because they listen to WBSM all the time. And they like our political programming, our political discussions. They like the local news that we give that you can't get anywhere else. They like all of the different reasons to listen to WBSM, but they don't really like the paranormal. And they don't really believe in the paranormal. And they think that I'm an idiot for going out and looking into the paranormal. And I know this because I used to take their phone calls on Saturday mornings. And that's okay. I'm not trying to convince everybody. That what we do is real. I hope that for the two hours every week that Spooky South Coast is on, it just makes you consider the possibility. And I think that's what the Warrens were doing with their media appearances, too. They wanted people to consider the possibility. So I would recommend to anybody out there, uh, if you are interested in the way the paranormal world is now, why it is the way that it is now, why it has this, uh, you know, this, this media spotlight on it. Go and watch that documentary. It's called The Devil's Road, The True Story of Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's uh, under this new banner of what they call Shock Docs that the Travel Channel is going to be putting out a couple of different documentaries like this. Now, there are some controversial parts of the Warrens' life that or lives that is not covered in the documentary. I didn't think that it would be. If you remember a few years ago, there was a story that broke uh, about the Warrens' marriage not being exclusively just the two of them, that they had a third party for 30 years that was involved in their marriage. And listen, I don't know that if it's true or not. Um, we've heard differing points of view. Some people say yes, some people say no, people close to them I'm talking about. The fact of the matter is the person who is coming forward, or the reason why this information was coming forward is because, you know, they wanted a cut of that Warner Brothers money. But the story came out nonetheless. And, and we discussed it here on the program because it was relevant to the paranormal world and it, and it should be discussed. Um, but I always look at that too under the banner of that's their own personal lives and it doesn't affect the work that they did. It might affect what you think of them as individual people, but it doesn't necessarily affect the work that they did. It was a fair argument to be made that because they come at the the world of the paranormal from such a Roman Catholic perspective, because they utilized their faith in so much of the work that they did. And some might say, those who were critical of them, might say that they used the 
the Roman Catholic Church and, and, and belief and mindset and dogma as as a tool in in what it was that they were doing. That if if they were just regular run of the mill paranormal researchers, they wouldn't get the attention that they got. That because they were using the word demon, demonic, diabolical, because they were using that type of terminology to discuss the phenomena that they were encountering, that made it sexier for the news media to go and descend upon whatever it was that they were doing. So they were basically just, you know, in the eyes of the people that are skeptical and and critical of it, they were really just using that belief set as a way to kind of sell their product. They were co-opting the belief as a way to push their agenda. I don't know if I would go that far. I, I, everybody that I know that knows them says that they were very devout and that they were 100% you know, true believers and, uh, and, and lived the life. You know, they didn't just they didn't just talk the talk. They walked the walk when it came to their to their religious beliefs. So I'm going to cut that part out of the discussion. But they I can see how others who are, you know, of that same belief system would say, but it says in our religion that a marriage is between a man and a woman. Not a man and two women or not a man and a woman and then they let somebody else be part of it as well so yeah okay i can understand where you would come from from that but my overall perspective of it is it's their private lives we don't i and this is maybe just something that i've learned over the years i just don't think that we need to dictate to somebody what a marriage is you know somebody's marriage is different than yours and the way that they choose to observe and live that marriage is not your business. Now, the phone lines can light up with people saying, you know, the sanctity of my marriage is threatened by the uh, lack of sanctity in yours. But in truth, it's not. In truth, their marriage, does if they have a third party involved in it, does not weaken yours in any way. Your marriage is completely reliant on the strength of the commitment that you and the person that you are committed to have with each other. And it, you can't tell me that Ed and Lorraine Warren did not have that commitment to each other. I can see why it was cut out of that documentary, though, why it was not addressed. First of all, it hasn't been, you know, officially, I guess, proven. But also, there was a desire with that documentary to, you know, prop them up in a, in a rightful place. There's been a lot of criticism over the years that the Warrens might have faked stuff or lied about stuff in order to get themselves on television, in order to get attention for some of these cases. I I don't know if I can buy that either. I want to believe that might have happened because the stuff that they were talking about is pretty terrifying if it's real. But then again... I want to believe in the sincerity of it because I want people to believe in the sincerity of what I do as well. So that's probably not the case. There's a lot of people who I respect 
and who I would um, put on the, you know, the even the Mount Rushmore of paranormal researchers, but certainly, you know, in the, the Paranormal Hall of Fame, which is a whole other thing, by the way, which we've tried to launch, and it's just, it's it won't work. But the people that would that I would put in that realm who come back and say, no, the, the Warrens were completely on the up and up. That's what I'm going to have to go by. But controversy will always be there. So if you haven't had a chance to check out the documentary, I do recommend it. You can get it on demand. Uh, I actually turned on the TV and it was on Travel Channel. And I was like, oh, right. I meant to watch this. And it was already half over at that point. So I just checked to see. And it was definitely on my my Comcast on demand. So if you have Travel Channel, I'm sure you can watch it. If you have any of the streaming services that have the Travel Channel add-on, I'm sure you can watch it as well. It, it's worth you know the hour and a half of your time. It's worth seeing, especially if you're interested in this stuff, how it was portrayed and how it slowly became looked at through a different lens. You know, there's a great clip in the documentary. I think they were on the Mike Douglas show. There was clips of them on all kinds of talk shows, but I'm pretty sure it was Mike Douglas, where Ed and Lorraine come out, and Cheech and Chong are on the couch already. Now, is there anything more 70s than to say it was the Mike Douglas show Maybe it was Merv Griffin. I don't remember which which host it was. But either way, to say that you know they were on a, a, a TV talk show and on the couch is Ed and Lorraine Warren sitting next to Cheech and Chong. I mean, that's, that's 1978 America right there. But the, the idea that you know they were kind of mocked as they were sitting there by Cheech and Chong then you see clips of them later and, and you know, Larry King and, and, uh, and ABC News and all these other like more predominant news organizations are now turning to them for information and for interviews about things. You know, that's kind of where it's gone. But you, you had to go through the part where you were getting mocked. And they seem to go through that pretty well. They seem to handle that. They seem to know that it was part of, that it was part of the 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 deal now the other thing that i think is lost on people if you don't kind of pay attention to the nuances of what was going on and certainly while it was happening it probably wasn't something that people paid attention to or realized but going back and watching it now you can you can definitely see now part of what they were doing in putting themselves out there is they knew that they could handle it they knew that they could be the ones to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be questioned. They could handle it. They were built for it. Who was not built for it and who maybe could not handle it were the families that they were helping. So by them going to a haunt, going to a case, and these cases, by the way, you know, we say now that people don't like to talk about when they have paranormal activity because they're afraid of what their their friends and their neighbors and their family will think. 
and they don't want to call the police because they don't want it to get into the newspapers and they don't want the newspapers to know because then the neighbors will know and all of that stuff. You have to understand, I mean, I wasn't alive and working in the paranormal field for much of the 70s, but I can tell you that it seems to me as an outsider looking in that there was a time when people did all that because they didn't know what else to do and they didn't know who to turn to. And also this stuff was in the public eye then. You had you know, The Exorcist. You had the the book first and then the movie of the Amityville Horror. You had, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, great horror movies that came out at that time. But you had, you know, horror hosts on your UHF television stations. You had uh, creepy television shows in the 60s that were comedies, like The Munsters and The Addams Family. Uh, you had My Favorite Martian. Then you, you see this turn to now in the 70s, we have more dramatic paranormal shows you know the the twilight zone of the 60s led to the night gallery of the 70s and you know now you have shows like kolchak and and uh and and some of these other the the invaders and these other programs that you know maybe didn't have as much uh shelf life but they were certainly peppering the primetime lineup so it was a little bit more out in the open then so people might have actually been willing to turn to the newspapers, the police, the fire department, all of that. But by Ed and Lorraine getting involved in the situation now, they become the paranormal spokespeople for that case. So now ABC News reaches out and says, we want to do a story about this haunted house in Connecticut. And I'm sure the conversation went something like this. You know, we'd like to have Ed and Lorraine Warren on and the homeowner on. And and they probably said, well, listen, we'll come on, but we don't really want to put the homeowner any more in the public eye than we need to because we want to help them with this case and then have them get back to their regular lives, their private lives, and then we're still going to be the ghost hunters that are always going on TV talking about our next case. So in a way, getting out there and putting themselves in the media was a savvy move because it deflected the media from the the actual people and it actually made it actually made them the main characters of the story and it took the family out of it and they just became background noise so that maybe they wouldn't be plastered all over national television so that maybe you know six months after the haunting had ended they could go to the gas station or the supermarket or out to dinner with the family without getting weird looks from anybody so in a way it was a smart move to do that. I don't know that it was necessarily exactly what they were doing and what they were thinking, but I would not be surprised if I find out that it was because it kept people from going through unnecessary undue grief. One of the things that I think is most fascinating about that documentary too, as you're going through and as you're watching it, is there the, the way that the story came about and the way that they started utilizing Ed's knowledge of demonology and Lorraine's clairvoyance the way that they started incorporating those and in, in putting the two of them together on cases it wasn't you know it it, it wasn't like they had looked at Harry Price's work and Hans Holzer's work, I mean, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they paid attention to what those before and what those contemporary to them were doing. 
but it was very organic for them the way that they did it. And so that's why, you know, it's hard to find the next Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's hard to find, and it doesn't have to be a married couple, but just any two people that can be in total sync in the way that they conduct these investigations. We do have, you know, an influx of people on social media couples, people that are both interested in the paranormal that get together that are suddenly, you know, the paranormal it couple and they want to utilize that as their their marketing tool. And I don't know if being a married couple was the Warren's marketing tool. I think that was just circumstance. I think it, it, it was more to them about the work that they were doing than the fact that they were a couple, but just go on, you know, social media and start searching that term. And there's, you know, 50 different couples calling themselves the paranormal it couple. And by the way, just my observation, that seems to be the, the kiss of death for the relationship. Don't do it because it doesn't seem to work out well. Uh, just I don't know if it's just that relationships don't work out well, but certainly every paranormal couple that I've seen, uh, and I should say that I don't want to see this happen. Please don't let it happen. Work out your problems. Go to counseling. Uh, but you know, it just I don't think we're going to see the next kind of Ed and Lorraine Warren because it's it's almost better to have people investigating than have different perspectives that aren't necessarily on the same full belief system. Certainly on the same wavelength, you know, that chemistry, but that chemistry can be found in a number of different ways. You know, I have that chemistry with Stephanie on investigations, but Stephanie has even more chemistry, you know, with her boyfriend on investigations. Um, and I have, you know, chemistry with a lot of people that I investigate with that I think lends itself to helping on the investigation. And then there are other people that I, I feel that there is no chemistry between myself and them on an investigation, not for, you know, any negative reasons, but maybe we just don't know each other that well, or maybe we have such varied perspectives on it or whatever, but you can, you can say like, there's no, there's no vibe between us here when we're trying to do this work. But yeah, that doesn't mean that stuff doesn't happen when I'm investigating with that person. So it's certainly going to be hard to see somebody else reach that level. I have some friends, Greg and Dana Newkirk, that you know a lot of people kind of refer to them as the modern-day Warrens. Uh, they kind of defer from that a little bit um, in, in the way that they try to do their, their stuff. But you know, they might be you know, the closest that we might have to that right now in terms of a married couple that are at that level. But uh, certainly the documentary itself is worth a watch. If you are somebody who is mildly interested in the paranormal, check it out because you need to kind of understand what it was like for paranormal research in the 70s and 80s and even into the 60s. And you'll, you'll get an idea and a sense of that. You'll get an idea too of also how that kind of work can affect the families because their daughter Judy is talking quite a bit about, 
you know, the way that things went and, and having an occult museum and in the garage at her house and all that stuff. So that kind of plays into it as well. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I started this stuff when I had a two-year-old son and I didn't really think much when he was young about the fact that, you know, I was going out and publicly being a person talking about the paranormal. But as he got older and as he went to school and as I was meeting other parents and other parents were, you know, following me on social media just because we had kids that were friends and as neighbors would, you know, become more sociable with us over the years and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't always easy. And so, uh, you know, I, I tell my son that I'm sorry that if you suffered any, you know, slings and arrows for being the kid of a ghost hunter. Now, he always says, no, nobody's ever said anything. Some of his friends think it's cool, but nobody really ever mocks him for it. But I also don't know if he would necessarily tell me if they did. But you, you can kind of see the way that that happens and, and the effect that it can have on your life, especially when, you know, you're Ed and Lorraine Warren, you've been on national television it's going to be really hard to go somewhere with your kids you know the same way they kind of protected the families they were giving up that protection for themselves and for their own family so i don't know it's but it's definitely worth watching if you're a horror fan for sure it's definitely worth getting the the true story of the warrens besides the way that's going it's being portrayed in the conjuring films the problem with the Conjuring films is it's based on, so you're not getting, you know, necessarily the true facts of either the relationship or of the cases themselves. For example, you know, the Conjuring 2, Ed and Lorraine Warren are the heroes of the Enfield Poltergeist case over in England. They were, they were barely there. And they were certainly not the heroes of that story. So there's always going to be this this myth-making now around them as these movies keep getting cranked out. And they're not going anywhere. There's a third one coming out, I think, this fall. So the folk hero status of them is only going to increase. And as that happens, it's worth going back and seeing, you know, the real people that those films are about. So again, it's called Devil's Road, the true story of Ed and Lorraine Warren on the Travel Channel. It's, uh, it's really interesting to see the archival stuff on these cases you know we've talked about many of the cases they talk about uh of course the conjuring case we've talked about numerous times here on the program we've talked about the bridgeport poltergeist case uh we have talked about of course amityville we talk about all the time i think i can say that now on this program without everything going haywire not totally sure uh so if your stream cuts out i apologize and then We've talked about the haunting in Connecticut case. So there's, it'll be familiar to a lot of you. Some, But to see, to see the, the actual, you know, news footage in some of the film reels and to hear the interview audio tapes, I find it hard to think that if you're a person that's skeptical about this stuff, that you could listen to the way those cases are presented in, in that documentary and say, Nah, there's nothing to this stuff. Because hearing police officers, firefighters, you know, people of prominence, 
the families in their own words, people explaining what it was that they were experiencing in these cases. It, it makes a difference. So again, give it a watch. It's called Devil's Road, the true story of Ed and Lorraine Warren. You can catch it on Travel Channel On Demand. I'm sure that, uh, you know, whatever, however you get Travel Channel, it will be available to you. Now, I also want, as we go into the news coming up in a few minutes, I want you to come back for the next hour. I want you to call in. But I also want you to put your TV on if you're home. Put the TV on Travel Channel. Because coming up at 11 is the season finale of Hotel Paranormal. And I want to make sure that we get big, big ratings for the season finale. So that we can get some more episodes made. It was a lot of fun to work on that program. And it's been great watching it each week. Of course, I don't watch it. Well, I do have it on in the studio. But, you know, then I go home and I watch it when I get home after the program. But it's been great watching the way that they present these cases. And it's in a way where, you know, of course, they're trying to make it creepy and scary. and But they're also trying to be factual with it. And they're trying to let myself and the other paranormal researchers that are on the program kind of explain why the things happen the way they happen. So, and, and I'll be honest with you, not everything that the other paranormal experts have said is something that I agree with. But I will say, you know, the concern is always like, how are you going to be portrayed on these programs? Are they going to cut what you say up to make it fit whatever narrative they're trying to push? And, and I can tell you that everything that they've, they've done with myself, I'm, I'm happy with. Because they've gotten my actual take on what it is that's happening in these stories or what it is that's happening in haunted hotels overall. And they've never manipulated what I say in any way. And I just, I think that the production company just isn't the kind of people that do that. They have a great sense of humor. I can tell you that firsthand because last week there was a a person sharing their story on last week's episode that was wearing a maroon shirt that looks very similar to the maroon shirt that you see me wear in every episode because I wore the same shirt both days of filming because they thought that one looked the best on camera. So I tweeted out a side-by-side photo of myself and the other guy. And I was like, somebody forgot to tell Ron that I'm the one that wears the maroon shirts on Hotel Paranormal. And he responded back with something funny. And, uh, and we started following each other. And then later on in the episode, there's a third person, a woman who comes on wearing a maroon shirt. So I put up a screenshot of that. And I was like, all right, now it's just getting ridiculous. And so I, I tweeted that out too. And the production company tweeted back and said, uh, we spent all of our wardrobe budget on Dan Aykroyd, which is funny on two reasons. One, because, you know, it's a great clapback, but also because, you know, you never see Dan Aykroyd on the program. He just narrates it. So it's it's doubly funny to me. And then, of course, if you watch Devil's Road about the Warrens, you'll see Jeff Belanger wearing a maroon shirt. So this is going to lead to our... New paranormal drama that you can catch on television soon. Maroon is the new black. (laughs) Because normally all the paranormal people wear black. But now maroon is going to be the new new black. So I just, I got to find a good maroon 
shirt manufacturer, you know, whoever makes the Henley shirts that I wear, uh, Land's End or whatever, whoever makes these these shirts, I got to get an endorsement deal so I can have plenty of maroon Henleys if uh, if season two of Hotel Paranormal is a go. And just in case it is a go, you can email me your stories, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. If you've ever had a paranormal experience in a hotel or a motel or a holiday inn, uh, you can send me your story. Also, if you've had an experience in the UK, you can send that directly to my friend MJ. You can reach her at sageproductionsuk at gmail.com. So between the two of us, we would like to collect your paranormal hotel and motel and bed and breakfast stories anywhere in the U.S., or really in Europe. I think she'll take any Europe, European story. But we, we're looking for people that have had experiences when they're not expecting it. You know, not uh, paranormal researchers who are going out on an investigation. We're looking more for people that, you know, went and stayed somewhere and had something happen. It doesn't matter if you are a paranormal researcher as long as you weren't, like, expecting this to happen to you. Uh, and, and likewise, you know, just because you went and stayed at the Lizzie Borden house... And you knew that it was, you know, supposedly haunted when you stayed there. You know, we still want to hear about your experience. So you can send it to me, Tim at uh, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com or to MJ, Sage Productions UK, S-A-G-E Productions with an S, UK at gmail.com. And coming up in the next hour, I'll also tell you about some other paranormal stories that I'm looking for for a couple of different projects, including the return of... Uh, a topic that you have heard a few times here on the program over the years, a new book that I'm working on in that regard, and also uh, anybody that has ever had an experience on a certain haunted ship. So we'll have all that coming up in hour number two. The phone lines will also be open, 508-996-0500. You can call in and get in on the air here. More Spooky South Coast in just a bit. Number two of Spooky South Coast here on WBSM and simulcast on Midnight FM. Hello to everybody listening on Midnight FM and listening in the Discord server. Hello to Nancy. I'm not missing your questions. I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, also, everybody that is tweeting, you can use the hashtag Spooky Live and hashtag Midnight FM. And of course, all you fine folks listening on WBSM and the WBSM app, uh, we are talking about the paranormal that's what we talk about here on spooky south coast and of course we're always available for your breaking paranormal news and neil writes in and says he wants to know if anybody is experiencing any ufo activity tonight if anybody has seen anything odd in the skies over new bedford tonight because he has so anybody that has experienced that and wants to call in and tell us what you're seeing 508-996- 0500. Now, the important thing is, you know, it's one thing to call in and tell us 
about it. The important thing is to go to the National UFO Reporting Center website, which is, hold on, let me give you the right address because I always give it wrong. I know, it's really great when I have to stop to type. NUFORC.org. NUFORC.org. Any of your UFO sightings, even if you're not totally sure, submit it to that site because uh, Peter Davenport and his team, they look into all of these cases and they see if they can find any explanation for it. So they'll tell you if maybe there was... Uh, some sort of unusual satellite activity going on. I know that when uh, those uh, those satellites were in the air a couple of months ago, you know, people were seeing the the I forget the the link satellites there. When when people were seeing them in the sky, and they would describe them to the National UFO Reporting Center, they would kind of mark it in the database that it, it could have been those satellites, and and they did the same. Uh, you know, with some other different things, uh, you know, meteor showers that are going on. They are, they're always kind of on top of that. So nuforc.org is a great place to report it. Also report it to MUFON. Now MUFON is having, you know, some reputation issues right now in the media overall, uh, and deservedly so, but the people who are collecting those reports and looking into them are the the people that are doing the great work for that organization. So uh, I would always report it to both. It's not an either-or situation. Uh, I would report it to both places because they, they don't sync up their reports together. So it is two separate databases. So you want to make sure that you report it to nuforc.org and mufon.com, M-U-F-O-N.com. But you can also call in and share them with us because, of course, I'd love to hear what's going on out there. 508-996-0500. If you ever do encounter a UFO especially if it is a sustained sighting, which I look uh, at least a couple times a month at all the different reports coming into those databases. And if it is a sustained sighting of, you know, more than a few minutes, and some of these reports say that they see the same lights in the sky in the same position every night, you know, so especially in a case like that, the best thing to do is to download the Skyview app or something similar on your phone and utilize that. It allows you to point your phone up at the sky, and it will tell you exactly what is what, what it is that you're seeing. So it will map the sky for you, and as you move around, you will see like all of the different you know planets, the different stars, stars that I've never even heard of, but they're all mapped on this on this app. And it will allow you to see to to know if what it is that you're seeing is a star or a satellite or a planet. Uh, another great tool, is, and it's just fun to have anyway, is the ISS app, the International Space Station app. Download that on your phone too because that will allow you to connect to the ISS cameras at any point and see what the space station is seeing. So you get to see you know, what it's seeing ahead of it. You get to see what it's seeing below they do special app alerts so that you can catch the sunrise and the sunset from the ISS, which is really, really cool to see. But it also has a tracker tool on it. So you can always tell when the ISS is going to be floating over your house. So it's, it's a pretty cool app that's worth getting. But I would recommend both of those. I can tell you that I left the station last 
Sunday morning after the spooky South Coast. And as I walked out, we had a nice bright moon. And then right behind it was a, a very close star that or planet or something that was just sitting there. And I was like, well, that is odd. You know, the positioning that it is. Normally, you don't see something bright enough to shine through the, the light of the moon. So I pulled out my Skyview map and and saw that it was a star that I've you know never heard of before but that it was probably you know getting some of the the bump of the the moon glow to help us see it here on earth so again both both apps very worth having uh but again you can always call us 508-996-0500 with any of your sightings uh, a question also came in from Nancy in Discord she wanted to know if the film, as we were, you know, we were talking about the different cases that the Warrens investigated, that including the Enfield poltergeist. They did go over and, and look into that case, but they also were heavily involved in the Bridgeport, Connecticut poltergeist case. Uh, so she asked if the film Poltergeist is based on the work of the Warrens, if they investigated a case that inspired that movie. And I would say no from everything that I know. I mean, I know quite a bit about Poltergeist. Maybe some of the stuff from Bridgeport might have been in Steven Spielberg's mind because the story in Bridgeport did get national attention. So there was a lot of coverage of that uh, that, you know, he probably caught and paid attention to. But... Uh, from my understanding, the way that that film went about was he had the idea and kind of the concept for it. And I'm just looking this up here to see if I can find if there's anything that differentiates from the way that I remember it. But the he kind of came up with this concept and then... Uh, Michael Grace and Mark Victor were the, the two writers that kind of worked to develop that story into a working movie script. And I thought I heard somewhere that the, and, and, and again, I've consumed so much stuff on Poltergeist. It's one of, if not my favorite movie of all time. I thought I heard that it was inspired by things that happened to him when he was younger, whether it be, you know, actual paranormal experiences or, you know, just fears that he had as a kid, they incorporated a lot of that into the filming. And then, of course, the the controversy was who really directed Poltergeist? Was it Steven Spielberg or Toby Hooper? And there was a, a, a theory out there for a long time that it was actually Steven Spielberg that did all the directing, but that because he was contractually obligated to make something else his next film, he couldn't say that he did. And so they put Toby Hooper's name on it. But, you know, it, that that story's been refuted over the years by people saying, you know, he, he was on set, he had input, but it was Toby Hooper that was di directing the film. So from my understanding, Nancy, you know, Poltergeist is fictional. It may have, you know, had some elements from Steven Spielberg's life into it, but it certainly was not you know, based on anything to do with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, there is a, a parapsychology team in that film, but there were so many different paranormal psychology teams that that could have been an amalgamation of 
So you've got a little, there's a, there, there's a little bit of, you know, maybe the Warrens in, in it to people that know the Warrens, but it was probably more in line with the kind of work they were doing at, at Duke university and in some California universities as well. I think Caltech had a team, but there was, there were, there were teams that were of parapsychologists that would go out and investigate haunted cases. Of course, you know, Lloyd Auerbach handling most of those, uh, high profile Carol, uh, California cases. And then you have, um, the, uh, the entity case as well, which if you've never seen that movie, you know, from what I understand that case itself was pretty intense. So I don't know how much of the, the actual events were, fictionalized but the um certainly the 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 intensity of it uh is just as bad for Doris Bither as it was portrayed in the movie and uh, and I've had the opportunity to interview Dr. Barry Taff and we talked a little bit about that case so you know there's that's one that you can say is is again, based on a true story, it was actually turned into a book, and then the movie is based on the book. So, you know, where the story gets muddled up in that process, I don't know. And the same thing, by the way, with Haunting in Connecticut, which the movie doesn't feature Ed and Lorraine Warren, but they worked that case. Um, I don't know what the specifics were about that. You know, I don't know why they didn't, you utilize the Warrens. They didn't even utilize the the, the real names of people uh, in that film. They they gave them all, you know, character names. So I don't know, even if they did incorporate the Warrens, but I, I would assume that probably had something to do with the fact that they were, you know, keeping the slate clean for other deals as well. Like one of the things that I know of, going back to the Warrens is that the Conjuring franchise, from my understanding, is trying to get the rights away to the Amityville franchise. So I think it's, well, Warner Brothers, but I think it's, I think Blumhouse is the one putting out the Conjuring. I'm, I'm getting all my horror movies mixed up in my head. But, you know, the big thing when when, when everything happened with, with Miramax, you know, the, the big thing was like, could we get, the, the Amityville franchise away from them to be able to start incorporating Amityville into the Conjuring series. Because if you remember at the beginning of Conjuring 2, I think it is, there's, it's basically Amityville, but they can't call it that. And I know that they would love to make a, a full movie of the Amityville research that the Warrens did. If you've ever seen that famous Ghost Boy of Amityville photo, which is, you know, still in, in dispute to this day. But if you, if you ever saw that photo, I mean, just look at that. That's your conjuring Amityville poster. That's all you need right there. And that would get people lined up. Uh, and I, and I do think that an Amityville conjuring film would be just as big as the first one. People don't realize that that film was hugely successful. $300 million at the box office. I mean, it was a legitimate blockbuster film. And it was a good horror movie. You know, not all of it is, you know, totally factual based on what happened to the parents, but it certainly 
one of the best horror movies that's come out of Hollywood in a long time. So it's worth, you know, your time. If you're a horror fan, even if you're not a paranormal fan, you don't care about what actually happened in that case. So one other thing that I wanted to quickly touch on too, when it comes to the Warrens is that we have to understand the times of the investigations that were done and what was kind of known about the paranormal at the same time. You know, they didn't have in the seventies when they were getting on national television for these cases, I had talked about how they looked at things through their religious lens, but they also didn't have the same um, knowledge base that we have now on investigations, although they utilized a lot of the same tools and methods. You know, electronic voice phenomenon was not as predominantly known and understood and studied as it is now, but all paranormal researchers were still going out and bringing tape recorders and trying to capture voices on tape. I mean, we talked about that with Keith Johnson in the Conjuring case in the early 70s that, you know, they're bringing these recorders and they're trying to capture spirit sounds on the tape. So, you know, maybe the religious lens is also the way that they had to look at things because that was the only way that they understood this activity as being the work of demons because it's a totally different world now than it was then when it comes to paranormal research. 508-996-0500. Again, 508-996-0500. If you want to call in and share any of your paranormal thoughts, your concerns, maybe you have seen the UFO that's in the sky over New Bedford tonight and you want to let us know about it. Uh, thank you, Mark, on Twitter for listening to Spooky Live and on Midnight FM, and thank you for watching Hotel Paranormal at the same time. I, I've noticed the, the maroon shirt out of the corner of my eye a, a number of times here in the studio. I was, uh, I was going to, I was going to um, wear that shirt tomorrow when I start covering the Patriots again, but now I think I got to just save it. Like now it's, it's got to be my, like my exclusive paranormal shirt. Although if they, if they have a season two and they want me to come back and do it, I'm going to have to go get a new paranormal shirt because I lost some weight. So that I think that one will look a little bit different on me now. But anyway, besides that, uh, I was talking before about some things that are coming up. Uh, in the fall, and uh, I think it goes without saying, I don't, I don't need to go into the whole spiel about how, you know, in this world that we live in today and the way things have changed and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think you kind of understand that the usual way we would interact on Halloween time and during October has changed. So it's not going to be the usual, you know, come out and see me at this library, come out and see me at this library. It's going to be virtual presentations but i do have one in-person event on the book so far and, and there might be a few more and I'll, I'll tell you about those coming up but we do have a call on the line uh, so let's go to that good evening you're on spooky south coast hello good evening my friend how's Always it going a pleasure. um i've been listening since you started tonight and uh 
I like I like, like you've covered the generalized things about that couple of different things, but you've also kind of got more information. So as you said, when you first started this, and then as a trade, basically, there's more people getting involved, is making more sense instead of all that and anything that investigating something in time that should happen. Um, and then when you have movies and documents, documentation movies and stuff like that put on stuff, after a while you're going to sit there and go, wow, there's something here to look at. And right. I've always believed in UFOs and stuff like that. Um, when the original book, Project Blue Book, came out where they published it, I think I was like 13, and a friend of mine had it. I lived in uh, Swansea, and his father had it, actually. And I asked him if I could read it. And he says, yeah, but you have to stay here and read it. So I would go over for like, took me like five days. I put like three hours into it. Now bringing it forward, the things that we hear about today, where you have um, documented airlines, guys who are in the military, in airlines, and more and more things are happening. And it's just, there's no coincidence. And now the government in the last six months has finally, they haven't said yes, it definitely is. Like that most recent one on the uh, one of the um, Navy destroyers and the documents are coming out more and more. So what they basically, they've now used this new word, uh, phrase. They're not saying UFO, an object unexplained. And I've read two or three of those articles and I'm going, but doesn't that mean the same thing? But as far as it, that's the new phrase coming from the military. <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, we've seen you know what started off as flying saucers uh, in the fifties because that's what Kenneth Arnold saw, you know, yep. in, in nineteen forty-seven. So that becomes kind of the hot way to describe it. But that didn't really encompass what people were seeing. In fact, a lot of the the uh, the craft that were seen in the skies here in southeastern South, New England uh, during the 1966 to 69 flap, you know, most predominantly around here in 67, especially over Round Hill and Dartmouth, a lot of the craft that were seen were described more as being cigar-shaped than, yeah, than being yeah, yeah. saucer-shaped. So we have, we, have, we have emerged out of that to have UFOs. Then people started to realize that some of these objects were coming not from the sky down, but from the ocean out. And then we had USOs, unidentified submersed objects. And, mm -hmm. and now the hot term seems to be a, you know, UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon, because just calling them flying objects isn't even an accurate description anymore because we don't even know if they're flying from one place to another. They, they just seem to be appearing in the air. I was with some of my relatives today. We were supposed to get together in July, but my sister, who was going to host it, um, she was sick during that period. So we got together. And at some point, me and my brother were power washing for her. We came back to the table, and they were talking about 9-11. And she says, you guys are going to love this. She said, I wanted to wait for you guys. So she shows us on her phone conspiracy theories. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there's this independent photographer who's from the Washington area, so he knows that area pretty well. He's about three-quarters of a mile away with, like, a super zoom lens, and he's kind of almost looking straight into that big, massive hole. Doesn't think much about it, but he take, 
after being a couple hours, he leaves to go eat. And he's taking a look at some of his pictures as he's going back. So he notices there's a vehicle that's destroyed, kind of like almost in line with it. He goes back there at 7 o'clock at night. It's not there. He leaves at 9.30 that night to go home. And on the local Washington news at 11 o'clock at night, the vehicle's back there in the same position. Hmm. How do you explain that? And my sister was showing me the picture for that. <laughs> I was like, whoa, because she knows I used to kind of get into that stuff. Well, uh, there's there's so many strange things that happen. And, and, and I'm not saying that people have to acknowledge the fact that there are ghosts or acknowledge the fact that there are UFOs or acknowledge the fact that there's Bigfoot or what have you, but at least acknowledge the fact that people are having these experiences that they can't explain. Now, you can say, you know, uh, it was probably, you know, a pipe banging or a deer moving in the woods or an airplane or whatever it is that you want to you wanna try to make yourself feel better by explaining it away as, but stop telling the person that they didn't have the experience that they had. That's where we have such a, a disconnect when it comes to this stuff is people aren't even willing to listen to the experience and try and help the person figure out what it might actually be. Now they just want to crap I on I held it. back the best part of this. In his Zoom lens, when he's back at 7 o'clock, so the light, that the better lighting and all that, in the hole in the Pentagon, there was no... Nothing that you would figure would be a plane. No seats. Mm -hmm. No baggage. That quickly after it happened? Yeah, I, I wouldn't have any expo explanation for that. Right, right. <laughs> so she's like, we're all sitting there today. and this, My uncle was in a Coast Guard in the 60s. Um, and he's like in his mid-70s. Mid and he was like, you're making more and more sense, but it doesn't make sense. How could you? It was a plane that we all knew. We saw the videos of it going down the Potomac, and then there was no videos of it actually making impact that have been released. But just basically 14 hours after, and there's and this this photographer who's well known down that area, and my sister points out, look at this picture. There is nothing. From a plane, there's no pots, there's no seats, there's no bike baggage. You're going to tell me in that time they cleared it all out, but left all the damage? Mm -hmm. And that was the way we left the conversation. We're back to eat, and I left. <laughs> well, well, I mean, there's so many weird things that happen, especially like if you look at like what happens in the Bermuda Triangle, yep. and and we have stuff that happens here in the Bridgewater Triangle. I mean, there's been planes. Look at that freighter that showed up off of Cuba back there in the fall, and it was it went missing like 40 years ago. Yep. Yeah, and that happens with planes and ships in the in the Bermuda Triangle for sure. Yeah, and that was in, through the Bermuda Triangle. Yep. So yeah, I mean, it, the strange things happen in this world, as Dickie Lee once sang. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Likewise, Phil. Take care. Yeah, bye bye. And if you would like to call in, 508-996-0500 is the number. This chair's a little squeaky tonight. I feel like Art Bell with a squeaky chair. Uh, you can. Um, you can call in 508-996-0500. As I was saying, I just want to let you know about a few things that are coming up to put on your Halloween calendar. And as you know, Halloween 
for me is all year round, but uh, there's some stuff coming up uh, in October that I think that you'll want to take part in. Uh, the first thing will be on October 19th, uh, I will be presenting for the Lakeville Public Library, uh, and we'll be doing that via Zoom. So you'll be able to uh, watch remotely wherever you are. Uh, I would, I'm going to announce when the registrations go up for the Zoom. I will announce that on social media, but you know, maybe we leave the Zoom spots for the local people first because we'll find a way to kind of feed it out to other people beyond that uh, with some of the social media that we can utilize. But I will be presenting on the Bridgewater Triangle for the Lakeville Public Library uh, on October 19th. Now, I have uh, done this presentation only once before, believe it or not. The Bridgewater Triangle is part of a lot of the presentations that I present, but this is the only the second time that I've ever done this one exclusively about the triangle. Uh, the first was for the Friends of the Berkeley Public Library a few months ago. And so this will be only the second time that that's been seen. So you can join in with that. I'll let you know when all that's released. Then on October 28th, I will be presenting Presidential Paranormal for the Middleborough Public Library via Zoom. And that's a presentation that I've been doing for a few years now. That has become very popular, uh, not because it is political. It is actually completely apolitical. Uh, politics does not enter into it at all. And that was a concern with a lot of libraries when I started bringing it out is, you know, does this presentation take a political stance one way or the other? And it does not. It is just historical information about some of the paranormal stories associated with presidents, um, hauntings in the White House, hauntings in some of their private residences, uh, some of the UFO activity that presidents have spoken about and also rumors that they have been involved in. So all that kind of stuff. So that's, it's a fun, it's a fun presentation. I mean, that's the ideas. It's all being presented, you know, from the perspective of is the white house, the most haunted house in America. And also how much do the presidents know about some of this weird stuff that goes on in our world? So that one is, you know, even though it's being presented a few days before the election, don't expect any any political point of view coming from that. Except, you know, if Abe Lincoln's ghost was to run for president, I would definitely vote for Abe Lincoln's ghost. Abe Lincoln's ghost does figure prominently into that presentation, as I'm sure you would assume that it would. And then coming up also, uh, this was actually just kind of finalized tonight, and there'll be more information on it coming down the pike. But the Alley Theater in Middleborough, which is a great little theater in Middleborough downtown, uh, and it's also the home of the Burtwood School, they're teaming up for these pop-up patio events that they've been doing right outside the theater uh, since, since you know, uh, restaurants could open up again and, and outdoor dining became a thing. They've been doing these pop-up events where they bring in different musical acts and different performers and speakers. And so I will actually be taking part in an event there coming up on October 29th, a spooktacular evening of ghost stories and legends. And it's going to be, you know, during the dinner hour. So it'll be happening from 6 to 8 p.m. The bar will open at 5.30. And you'll be able to go and hang out. Now, they do have a, uh, a $20 cover charge for people to come and take part in this. 
uh, and all CDC regulations will be followed. So you will be safe. They do have outdoor heaters too. So October 29th, I'm sure will be pretty chilly, but it's going to be so awesome to be out there under the stars, you know, with these, with these uh, heaters going. So it's nice and warm and toasty. They have umbrellas, you know, and, uh, and we'll be there sharing some ghost stories and some legends just in time for Halloween. So you can go uh, online and find out more about that. We will also have the information coming out to you uh, as the um, weeks progress. So I have to get some information over to them so that they can make all the formal pages for it and everything, and then everybody can start signing up for it. Or if you want to just make reservations now, email bertwoodschool at email.com, at email.com, at aol.com, bertwoodschool, B-U-R-T-W-O-O-D, school, at aol.com. And you can make your reservations now. Again, $20 cover charge, but they will also have a full bar from Bartending Service of New England and cafe uh, food from Central Cafe, which if you've never had Central Cafe, eh, how they recommend it. Uh, so especially they have some great pizza there, like you won't believe. Um, it's one of my favorite places to go to when I go and investigate the Oliver House you know, either there or Chard Oak. You'll always find me at one of those places. And also speaking of getting out into haunted places, uh, my weeknight program, Midnight Society on Midnight FM, I'm going to be broadcasting live from the Reverend Keith Parsonage in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, coming up on September 25th. So we're actually going to be talking about the hauntings and the history there live from that building. So that'll be a cool... Cool way to get out and experience some October fun a little bit early in September. And, of course, we also have the event coming up with Stephanie and Porter at the um, the Dunlora Inn in Mineral, Virginia. That's coming up at the end of October. So we'll have some more details for you on that next week. But uh, you can go to stephburke.com. And you'll be able to sign up for that now if you want to. It's going to be strange. It's going to be different. It's going to be weird this year. We're not going to be able to be out. You know, I'm so used to in October being out every single night. Literally, the last few years, from the time October rolls around until Halloween, there's somewhere that I have to be each and every night. And I love it. I love going out and talking to people directly. I love going out and sharing the research and the stories that I've been able to collect over the years. And I love being able to, you know, have that, not only the, the, the presentation in front of the audience, which I, I really enjoy. I mean, I just love talking to crowds. But it's the, the moments after when people are coming up to me and sharing their own experiences and telling me, you know, I've lived in this house in, in Whitman or Rockland or Middleborough or Dartmouth or Westport. I've lived here all my life and, and I've had these experiences and I never told anybody before. Or, you know, this has been going on and I'm not sure what it is and maybe you can help me figure it out. You know, these are the, the, the conversations that it's, it's hard for people to want to have. Even doing this program and saying to somebody, you can call up now and you can call anonymously. 508-996-0500. You don't have to give your name on the air. Nobody's going to know who you are. And you can share your paranormal experience and we can talk about it. But even then, people are too 
afraid to do that. But when you get the chance to go up there and talk in front of them for 45 minutes and to really explain to them what it is that you think about the paranormal and why it is that you think it's the paranormal. And I, I sometimes work in some of my own personal stories into some of these discussions, you know, then people become more comfortable and they want to share. So that's going to be, I think, a little bit missing this year. People still love to share on Zoom, but it's just, you know, being that, making that personal connection to get them to share probably won't be as prominent this year. But we still can have tons of remote fun and we still can share those stories. One of the other events that I'll be taking part in, and I will give you more details about that when I can. Nothing's been publicly announced yet. But just as I took part in the Dark Zones event at the Lizzie Borden House remotely, I'm going to be doing the same for their next event, which is coming up about the Queen Mary. So anybody out there that's had an experience on the Queen Mary, please reach out to me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com or Tim at Midnight.fm. Reach out to me and let me know about your experiences on the Queen Mary. And either I can share those stories as part of this this event or they they want to have some of the people actually sharing their story. So obviously if you want to share your own story, we'll make that happen. But maybe you know you don't want to put yourself out there on video to to share your story. You know, you can give it to me and I will tell it on your behalf. But either way, reach out to me with your story and I will make sure that it gets into the hands of the dark zone people so that we can talk about it during during that event. The Lizzie Borden event was really, really cool. I love the fact that there were people that bought this, the, the entire weekend pass for the whole four-day event, and they were watching it the whole time. And they were in the chat room, and they were constantly chatting. And I'm, I'm sitting there connecting with, with Jay and Susan, who were you know, kind of hosting the event, Jay remotely, Susan at the Lizzie Borden house. And I'm seeing all these comments go by. About, and people asking questions about the Lizzie Borden house and about the Bridgewater Triangle. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how great is this that they're getting people that are interested in the paranormal that still don't know about these places? And we're getting the chance to not only talk to them about it, but also show it to them as, you know, the team was, was there live. So pretty cool stuff. Now, before we go, I want to talk about one other quick paranormal story. And I purposely waited till the end of the night. Because I'm the only one here tonight. And that has me a little bit concerned about this story because there's nobody else here to back me up if something happens. And by back me up, I mean to say that they saw it too. We've talked about for years on this program. There's something that goes on in this building. In the WBSM studios which we share with Fun 107. You know, collectively, it's Town Square, New Bedford. But out of all the people that work in this building, there's very few people who have been coming here as long as I have. Now, I haven't worked here as long as they have. I've, I've only really been an employee here Uh, for the last four or five years. 
but I've been doing radio programs out of here since 2002. And I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I think there's only one person that's been in this building as consistently as I have been since 2002. Uh, some of the salespeople, sure. But, you know, they're kind of in and out of the building. They're not always here. You know, they, they, they go out and, and, and talk to clients. But I think only really Michael Rock has been in this building as much as I have over the years. And, and certainly more than me. But we've said for years that something strange goes on here. When we had the old kitchen design, we had this set of cabinets on the wall that would constantly have to be closed. And we would close those cabinets. And then you would go to the bathroom or go to the studio or whatever. And the next time you went to the kitchen those cabinets would be wide open again. That happened incessantly. We've had other issues where, you know, we get flickery lights. We've had other issues where we can hear voices. Now it's a radio station, so we've got radios going that are monitoring the broadcast. We have a police scanner in the newsroom. You know, we have the WBSM programming always playing on a studio monitor we have fun 107 playing on a studio monitor you know there's all these sounds that can happen but you get kind of used to that cacophony of noise and you you know when there's something different but the thing that we see the most often is the weird black shadow that walks by the studio after we're done with Spooky South Coast. The way that the station is designed, the way the studio is designed, if you've ever seen any of our, you know, live YouTube videos, and I know there's been talk about, you know, people want us to bring it back, and I've tried to explain, but I'll explain it again. We have plexiglass in the studio now, and it's it's harder to do the video. But the way the studio is designed is we have, I'm sitting in the center of the room behind the, the mixing board with the phones in front of me and I've got my computer and I've got all my gear to send everything out to Midnight FM and all that. Across from me, there's a couch and then behind that couch is a window that sees into the news booth so that in the morning or you know during the day when there's a, a person giving the news, the news anchor and the host can see each other and they can talk to each other and, and what have you on the right hand side is is a all pretty much all glass looking out into the parking lot and then on the right hand side we now have a big tv um broadcasting you know a big tv uh connected to the cable box on that side but for years that wasn't there and we have the door out into the hallway which is a regular door with a window in it uh, a good size window that takes up about you know a little less than half of the door and then immediately to my left is another window into another studio a small studio uh, that's used for you know recording stuff and uh, production stuff and 
you know, the uh, the idea being like if, if somebody's producing the, the daytime talk shows, whatever, they're in that room, you know, taking the calls and feeding them through to the to the host over here and all that stuff. You know, we don't we don't utilize that because it's just the spooky crew. But that room has a light that's a motion sensor so that when you walk into the room, the light comes on and then so that when you leave, it will turn off. Because for one, it's, you know, we, we use it sparingly, so why keep the lights on? And two, it can be distracting to the host sitting in the, the center seat if that light is on. So we have that nice motion sensor light. We would have the door to the studio closed. We'd be sitting in here, and I'm sitting in my seat, Stephanie sitting directly across from me. But we can both see into that door out into the hallway. And what would happen is we would see this black mass walk by the window. We're at the very end of the, the hallway here. The WBSM studio is in the corner of the, the, the building. And that production studio is right behind it. So these two rooms are along our back wall. And so what would happen is this shadow would be walking down the hall we would only catch it as it walked by the window to the studio but then it would walk into that production room that production studio and the light sensor the sensor light would come on the motion sensor would come on but nobody would be in the room we'd get up we'd look nobody was in the building we we actually have a a system to get into the building with keys that when you open the inside door, it makes a noise so that you know that somebody came in. Nobody will have made, you know, we wouldn't have heard that noise. We wouldn't have heard that sound. So nobody came into the building. But we would see this shadow walk by. And we would see that light motion sensor light come on with nothing in there to having activated it. So we just kind of got used to it because it happened enough. In fact, we had somebody that was coming in and doing production work for us that, that worked a different job and would actually come in sometimes at night while we were in here talking and do his work in that studio and then leave again. And so for a while, you know, we stopped seeing this, this shadow. Or if we did, we knew that it was just this person going in there to do some work. But then he moved on. And the shadow came back. And so we will sit here and we will see it happen. We'll see it go in there and turn that light on. And we couldn't figure it out. We still haven't been able to figure it out. Stephanie can't pick up on whatever it is. Without getting into, you know, the 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 private going on goings on of, of of the staff here, there are entities here that we know are here. But this doesn't feel to her like that. We were always the only people that experienced this, and we've told other people in the building about it. They didn't really have any experiences to share. But Taylor Cormier, who used to be our news director, he's now on the Howie Carr Show, he 
he always, you know, kind of raised an eyebrow at those stories because he had experienced weird things here. Like me, he was here at all hours of the day, sometimes first one in the building, sometimes only one here at night. And he experienced strange things too. But for the most part, you know, none of the people that worked in this WBSM studio had ever reported seeing this same phenomena happening. Until this past week. Phil Paleologus, who hosts the morning show here at WBSM, for, for those who aren't regular BSM listeners, he was in here early Wednesday morning in the six, 6 o'clock hour. And at that time, nobody's in the building except for Phil in this studio, Mary Cerez, our news director, in the newsroom, and then the Fun 107 morning show, Gazelle, Michael Rock, and Maddie Levine. They're all in the Fun 107 studio down the hall. And so Phil is sitting here, and he experiences exactly what it is that Stephanie and I have seen with this, this figure going by and going into that production studio and then walking out again. Except instead of just seeing it as a black mass like Stephanie and I have all those times, he saw it with far more definition. He said he was able to make out an ironed white button-down like dress shirt And that's more definition than, than we've ever seen. He wrote about it at WBSM.com, and you can read it. It's up there now. And he wrote about his experience there. And I don't, I'm sure that I've told him before about having seen that myself, you know, having seen this, 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 this specter come by the window, uh, especially when he and I went to Lilydale together and we were talking about all kinds of paranormal things. But it didn't really kind of stick in his mind at all. And it wasn't until he had this experience that we were like, okay, Phil, we've that's what we've been seeing, you know? So you can read all about it at WBSM.com. I was hoping tonight, if Stephanie and Moniz had been able to make it in, that maybe we could try and make contact with whatever that entity is. But it's probably better that they couldn't come in tonight because maybe we'll put it off to next week maybe we'll see if phil can pop in and see if we can't reach out and connect with whatever this entity is because we've we've done investigations here before uh we've there was a national paranormal day a few years ago uh stephanie came in and we did some seance stuff here in this studio including using a ouija board and some of our other ghost investigation gear. Then there was another time, I think it was also on National Paranormal Day, where Taylor came in, Taylor Cormier came in at night, and he and I went Facebook Live and conducted a paranormal investigation of the entire building, or of all of our offices. And a few little weird things happened, but nothing that I would call paranormal. But if this thing decided to make itself seen and make itself known beyond just, you know, walking by on a Saturday night, maybe there's a reason for that. And maybe we can reach out to it and find out what that reason is. So I'll check with Stephanie 
Uh, I'll see if she's planning on coming in next week. I'll see if she's comfortable with doing this. Because, as you know, we don't make her use her superpowers on the air. You know, we've brought in other mediums, other psychics who have given readings, but we don't we don't have Stephanie do that here usually. Uh, but, you know, in this regard, we'll, we'll have to have her turn on her superpowers to try and see if she can make contact with whatever this entity is. And then we also have some other equipment, some other devices. And I even have some new equipment coming this week that somebody's sending me that maybe we could utilize all of that here as we're going on with the program and see if we can't communicate. So in terms of radio, you know, you might hear some, some dead air, but we'll see if we can try and reach out and, and, and maybe I can get at least one camera going on the YouTube stream so that you can watch it as it's happening. Again, as I said, you know, we've got plexiglass here that makes it difficult to set up the multiple cameras for everybody to watch, but maybe we can do something where you can at least see what's happening and I'll certainly set up the shot so that you would be able to see the door and the little studio where the light goes on on its own. Because if it's starting to, you know, happen to other people here at the station, there's got to be a reason for it. And lucky for them, they just happen to have paranormal investigators <laughs> at work here that they can utilize. Also, a great article up on WBSM.com as well. Stephanie talked with Casey Sylvia about Mars retrograde and what you can expect for the next few months as Mars stays in retrograde, you can read that at WBSM.com. Uh, and really, that's part of kind of an ongoing thing where we're going to start doing more of those type of stories because people are paying more attention to that stuff and we want to supply them with the information. I don't know if I necessarily believe in it all. All I know is that every time Mars is in retrograde, I mean Mercury's in retrograde, it wreaks havoc with all the technical stuff. That part is true. So... If Mars retrograde is going to cause problems in your life, we at least want to give you the information so that you can find out and be prepared. That'll do it for tonight's show. You can always check out all of our archives at SpookySouthCoast.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. You know, whether it be Apple, whether it be Google Play, whether it be Stitcher, it's all there. Until then, stay spectacular.